0: Hi, I'm Josh. And I'm Preet. And this is Sicker Than Your Average Health Show.
1: Today is March 11th, 2021, and it's the inaugural Canadian Women Physicians Day, and it's a really important time for women in medicine. But Josh and I realized that we're probably not the best people to talk about the day, so we decided to talk to people who are.
2: Hi, I'm Dr.
3: Michelle Cohen and I'm Dr. Liana Wong and I'm going to show you why this podcast and I'm going to show you why this podcast is thicker than your average health show.
0: Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Cohen and Dr. Wong. We're very excited to have you uh, here with us today. Thanks for joining us.
3: Happy to be here. Thank you for having us.
0: As we get started on the show today, we'd love to ask you both to introduce yourselves.
2: My name is Michelle Cohen. I'm a family physician in Brighton, Ontario, which is a rural southeast Ontario. Um, and I also teach out of the Department of Family Medicine at Queen's. Um, I'm also the co-chair of the Advocacy Committee of Canadian Women in Medicine. Um, and outside of medicine, I write. I'm a freelance writer. Um, I've written a number of publications and blogs, and I do some advocacy work as well. My
3: name's Leanna Huang. I'm a family doctor, um, FM OSS. That's family medicine, obstetric surgical skills. Work mostly in Canmore, but also in Calgary, Alberta. Um, and I'm one of the new board, like directors on the board for Canadian Women in Medicine which is a non-profit organization that supports um, women in medicine across Canada in all stages of their careers. Outside of medicine, I guess I like to ski and I like to climb. That's why I'm based in Canmore, I guess. And yeah, thank you for having us on the show today.
1: Thank you both for being here. So I think just to start start off today, uh, I guess a bit of a broad question, but do you feel that people both within medicine and outside of the medical field are aware that there are gender inequities and how serious of an issue gender inequity is?
2: I don't think so. I don't think there's a tremendous appreciation for it on the whole. Um, I think women, particularly as they move through their careers, become more and more aware of the gender inequities that they face. I I don't know that trainees are always so aware of it because training can just be such a, a, a slog anyway. So it can sometimes be hard to pick up on microaggressions versus just the general, you know, harassment of, uh, that you endure as a trainee sometimes. So I I think there's not a terrific appreciation for it, but generationally, I think we're improving. So I think the younger generations are more aware of just equity issues in general in in medicine, outside of just gender. But overall, I don't think it's very well appreciated.
3: Yeah. And I think to kind of echo that, like definitely outside of medicine, I think there's a lot of, um, lack of awareness about it. If you watch TV shows like Grey's Anatomy or Um, that doesn't really seem to come up very often. It seems like, you know, there's a lot of strong women on that show who are like calling the shots and um, the challenges that, like I've faced personally and I'm sure that Dr. Cohen has faced don't usually tend to show up in those shows.
0: Dr. Cohen, you brought up a point that it seems as if uh, there might be a little bit of optimism in regards to the generational shift. Can you talk a little bit about what you think is behind that?
2: I don't know if it's just the general sort of progress that people become more used to seeing women in medicine and it becomes more natural seeming rather than I think a couple generations ago it was still fairly odd or unusual so I think that's part of it but also I think the the generation coming up now is just generally more equity-minded more interested in issues around equity and diversity and inclusion Um, uh, you know I'm about I'm 10 years out um, so it wasn't that long ago but I and I remember having conversations at the trainee level about representation about diversity but I don't feel like it was the same degree of depth that we are covering those issues today it was I think more of a Alternative position, maybe even a bit of a fringe position to discuss some of these things in depth. And now, just based on the kind of things that get put on uh, social media, the seminars I've been invited to teach, and with med student groups like Women in Medicine Interest Group, I think there's just i have seeing a lot more discussion around it and at a depth that I don't think I, I noticed, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And then, you know, even further back, you're going to find a lot of people just out now not not thinking about it at all or, or not um, considering that that is that is the problem, or oftentimes the earlier generations kind of felt like, well, women are allowed in, and so now there's lots of women in medicine. So how can there possibly be a problem? You know, problem solved. We're done. You know, um, and I, and I think we're we're seeing more uh, exploration of that topic now uh, with the younger generation. So it's really it's hopeful. It's it's good. It's good news overall.
0: It sounds like there's a lot of uh, opportunity for where these attitudes have the possibility for change, like you said, whether it's just through progress, whether you said through the growing number of women that are are coming into medicine. Um, Do do you happen to know at, at the moment... What percentage of practicing physicians versus what percentage of medical students are are represented by women right now? So
2: I think across the board of all practicing physicians, it's something like 42 or 43 percent female. And so when this current generation um, that's approaching retirement retires, when they do actually leave practice, it's going to be a big shift. I think we're going to get to the point where where women are then overrepresented. Um, and so I don't I don't have statistics the, right at the tip of my fingers here in terms of med students but it's you know something like above 60 65 percent like two-thirds female in, in that ballpark um for for med students coming in and med students graduating so it's a pretty huge shift it's a really really big shift that we've gone through in about four decades considering that in the mid to late 60s, women were basically banned, more or less banned from attending med school at all and really only allowed in um, in the 70s and were still in very low numbers throughout the 70s and, and part of the 80s. So it's a huge shift just in the last you know 25, 30 years.
0: And it sounds like organizations like the one that the two of you are a part of, this is the Canadian Women in Medicine uh, organization, is is part of the larger conversation, like you said, even though that women are representing a larger portion of physicians now, the conversation still needs to grow beyond just this isn't a problem that's solved by having more people uh, in these roles, which I think is going to take us into the topic that we'd like to talk about today, which we are celebrating on the first Canadian women physician day and it's a topic that we came about as scrolling through twitter and found a trend a trending topic by uh, a dr nikki stamp who's a cardiothoracic surgeon in australia and she had this topic trending dr conan saw that you were, were were following along with this at the time we're talking about pay inequities and the pay gap. We'd love to hear um, some more information on what's going on here, because even as Preet brought up before, we're talking about issues in uh, gender disparity within medicine that people may not be as aware of. And this sounds like a really important one for people to know more about.
2: So the gender pay gap, particularly in Canada, has really been underappreciated. So it's been pretty well studied in the US and in the UK and even in Australia. Australia, where Dr. Stamp is from. Um, but in Canada, we haven't really been appreciative of this issue. And, and part of it is a lack of, there's been kind of a lack of interest in, in studying it, which has now changed. There seem to be a lot more people interested in studying it, which is great. Um, a lot of enthusiasm for discussing it now, which is really nice to see compared to the last like five, 10 years when it was really not a topic of conversation at all. And there were very few um, studies or discussions of it. And, and yeah, it's, it's a big problem. It's estimated to be, uh, depending on which studies you look at about, um, amongst family physicians and about 40% amongst specialists. And this this varies a lot depending on what specialty you're in. It's a big gap um, between specialties. So male-dominated specialties in general tend to out-earn female-dominated specialties. And that gap seems to be widening a little bit. And then even within specialties as well. So even in a surgical specialty, which could could be quite uh, high billing, uh, there are still billing differences and other income differences between men and women within the same specialty. So big, big differences in terms of how men and women tend to work um, in medicine and what patients expect from us in medicine too. That's a big factor as well. Um, and, and some of our systems in our uh, medicine, like our the way that we pay physicians tends to disadvantage women in, in some ways, the fee-for-service system and other systems. So it's a, it's a pretty pervasive problem. It's, it goes all the way through uh, pretty much from any whichever mode of, of remuneration you can, c- can imagine. There has been uh, data to show that there's a gender pay gap. So it's pervasive and, and throughout uh, the profession. And, and we have a lot of work to do to, to cover, to make up some of the ground that we've lost by, by really not doing anything about it at all while it's been studied abroad and in other countries that are our international peers. So we, got, we have a lot of catching up to do.
1: So you referenced how there is more studies and more data available. So do you think that is what is pushing people to now have to recognize this as a major issue? Or have there been other drivers?
2: Yeah, I think mainly it's been having research and having a discussion about it in general. It's been a pretty hot topic of conversation just in women's only spaces. So like in kind of like the sort of doctor's lounge spaces that we formed on social media, where it's just like a group of physicians and there are many female only groups as well. And so it's a pretty hot topic of conversation there and very well acknowledged and understood and a lot of interesting discussion about people's personal experience with, Understanding or kind of coming to appreciate, which can sometimes take several years into your career, coming to appreciate how your male colleagues—you know—you're working just as hard as your male colleagues, but you may be making substantially less than them, or just have less opportunities. So there's a lot of conversation in those settings, but not a lot of broader conversation. So what's changed? in the last couple of years or, or the, this year in particular when I, I published in the CMAG about this issue is there's been now suddenly much more interest in having this discussion in a broader setting. Um, we got some good mainstream media coverage of it as well and, and um, a lot of other interest and it sparked a couple of other promising research projects too. So I think it's just kind of the, we just hit that point I think critical kind of mass on this discussion where, bubbled over from being a female-only conversation to a broader conversation amongst everybody, which is great.
0: Dr. Cullen, you brought up a a lot of uh, different areas and a lot of different explanations as to why this gap sort of exists. And we'd like to sort of maybe uh, explore some of those a little bit more. The first one I'd like to go with is on the topic of remuneration and how physicians end up getting paid for the services that they provide. Are you able to tell us more about the sort of ways that female physicians versus their non-female colleagues in terms of the appointments or the hours that they work, how those sort of translate differently, even though on the surface they may look quite the same, um, but what ends up being the care that's delivered to the patient ends up looking a little bit different if you examine it a little bit further? Mm -hmm.
2: So um, most of our data comes from fever service and that's affair because that's how most physicians in Canada practice is fee-for-service and fee-for-service incentivizes volume so the more patients that you see and the shorter your appointments generally the more money you will make Um, and as well the more procedural work you do as opposed to non-procedural work um, so things that are like counseling, or sometimes gets called cognitive skills, but like counseling skills, discussing things with patients, things where you're you're more using your, your brain and, and, and talking rather than your brain and your hands at the same time. So non-procedural stuff. That sort of service tends to just pay better. And if you can uh, stack a bunch of procedures together and do them quickly, then you can do, you can bill quite effectively and you can make a lot of money. Um, women tend to deliver less procedures than men and women tend to uh, provide more psychosocial care. Uh, more counseling care, um, more emotional support, and address social issues, so address psychosocial issues more thoroughly. And those sorts of, um, that type of care is time consuming. Um, you, you just simply you can't you know you can't do a minor procedure in the same time that it takes to you know you, you can stack together multiple minor procedures in the time that it takes to counsel somebody about their social issues or emotional issues um, So what's interesting is that patients actually expect that kind of uh, care from women disproportionately so patients tend to be much more forgiving of the busy male physician who kind of just breezes in the room does the 32nd appointment and, and rushes out because he's busy and he's important and he has lots of things to do. And those patients are much less forgiving of women who behave that way. And they tend to expect women to kind of hold their hand more and counsel them through something and deal with their emotions and provide them emotional support. And so they expect women to spend longer with them. So because of patient expectations and because of the differences in the type of work that we end up doing, um, at especially in a fee-for-service system, um, women just end up having less opportunities to bill um, and then when, we, when we're able to, outside of the um, time-based stuff, when we can kind of control for those issues, um, there's been some really interesting research in uh, Ontario on surgical procedures and surgical billings. And when you, you don't have an issue with respect to time, when people are, uh, surgeons are pretty much billing roughly, like performing the surgeries at roughly the same amount of time and billing roughly the same volume of codes, there's still a big gap because what ends up happening is that women are doing the procedures that are less lucrative. So even though they're working the same number of hours in the OR and they're seeing the same number of patients and they're performing the same number of procedures, the procedures that they perform just get paid less. So there's a bias in the uh, schedule of benefits that we haven't really fully appreciated yet because we've kind of just been assuming that the schedule of benefits is gender neutral and you do the code and you get the fee and that's all you really ever have to think about. Um, but when you dig a little bit deeper, there's actually quite a lot of bias baked into that system, into into the fee-for-service system.
1: So there's um, there's a few things there that we'd we'd actually love to touch on. But one thing I just wanted to ask you both, as practicing family physicians who uh, already are sort of sometimes challenged by the system of having to see lots of people, but also having longer appointments, has this issue adjusted how you have to operate? As doctors.
2: So for for me, I definitely am paying more attention to um, since I started thinking about like studying this a few years ago, the the time that I spend with patients um, and and, what the patients expect of me. So I I tweeted a little while ago an example of, of a patient, it was a phone appointment during the COVID era, it was a phone appointment. It was a patient who had a new diagnosis from a specialist and it had a procedure. And um, I explained to her, she had a bunch of questions about the procedure and she said, well, you know how he is. He just in and out of the room. He's so busy. He never has time to talk, but that's okay. I, you know, I know he's busy. And so I spent about 15 minutes of my appointment, this phone appointment, explaining everything about this new diagnosis and answering her questions. And I'm not being the specialist; I'm not the ideal person to be answering these questions anyway. But I'm, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing what I can. I'm giving her the information that she's asking for. And she said, "Thank you so much. You know, I know he would never have had time for me. Um, I really appreciate you explaining this to me. You know, and, and I, I reflected, having done, having written about the gender pay gap and studied it, reflected on how many, I've, how many of those types of encounters I've had in my practice." Um, you know, in just 10 years or so and, and not really appreciated it until, until, until relatively recently that this kind of dynamic is, is often baked into the relationship between, it can be between family physician and, and, and um, patient as well. Sometimes family physicians kind of get dumped on with respect to explaining new diagnoses or answering questions like that it can be just part of just being a family physician. Um, but I, I certainly get more of those sorts of requests for handholding and emotional support, and you know, than, than the men in my practice, for example, than than my male colleagues do. So, um, and I tend to have longer appointments and see less patients because I, I just simply can't deliver the kind of care that, that the patients expect from me and that I would like to be able to provide um, if I'm just you know pushing everyone through as, as quickly as possible. So it's a different style of practice, but um, it's also it's also one that that's kind of grown up with the patients in in terms of their expectations of me. So. Um, it's interesting to think about because there's lots of different ways that you see it sort of filtering down into the way that you work every day once you start to become aware of it and thinking about it more.
3: Yeah it's a little bit different in Alberta because there is some recognition of like time in our um, for now anyways (laughs) like we are in the process of renegotiating our contract and that was one of the things that was proposed that would be removed was the, the time modifier for our basic visits but Um, You know, the nice thing is, like, for now anyways, if we spend more time with a patient, we are compensated for it. It still pays more to see six patients an hour instead of two patients an hour. Um, But the differential is not as large as if it was just one flat fee for
2: a regular
0: clinic. Yeah, it's nice that
2: you guys have that. We've been pushing for that in Ontario, but they're not interested in talking about it at all. (laughs) The government's not interested in talking about it.
0: In terms of the clinical areas that, that maybe women overrepresent in, something like obstetrical care or, or women's health issues, um, that those areas actually seem to be to find themselves having more women physicians. And does that pay equivalent to if you can control it or match it across another discipline in some way?
2: In Ontario, if you do uh, an incision and drainage of an abscess on the vulva, You get about $50 and if you do an incision and drainage or sorry under general anesthetic that's part of it if you do an incision and drainage under general anesthetic so you're being put to sleep and you're having an abscess removed surgically um, if you're doing that on the scrotum it's $99 if you're doing that on the vulva it's $50 and so those are different body parts certainly Um, but I I really I really am hard-pressed to imagine a situation where it could be twice as complicated or take twice as long to perform a simple incision and drainage on uh, scrotum versus vulva. So I'm sure you can come up with situations where one would be more complicated than the other, but on the whole, you know, we're talking about pretty similar, like roughly equivalent procedures. And one of them is twice as much as the other one. So I think there are a lot of examples like that in women's health. Um, A a big part of the gender pay gap is that women disproportionately look after female patients. So I think the care that we provide female patients is undervalued. Um, So I think we take a financial penalty ultimately by being the ones that female patients want to see, because a lot of women want to see female physicians, you know, for for many understandable reasons. Um, we end up, a lot of us end up kind of specializing in women's health without really meaning to, because those are just the patients that, that choose you and that you end up kind of getting experience in. And and I think to, to sort of realize midway through your career that you've been basically, you're basically taking a financial penalty for that reason, for the, the good care that you've been providing to people who need care, but just happen to be, uh, you know, anatomically different from the, from from other people who need care. And so slotting you into that women's health category, I think is is pretty demoralizing. So I think sometimes when female physicians burn out mid-career, mid or late career, I think sometimes that's the reason is is feeling really undervalued for the work that they've been doing all that time.
1: So based on your experience, you know, whether it's within medical school during your residency training, or even now as practicing physicians, working in so many different medical settings, do you feel like there's an area behind the scenes where gender inequity is really unfolding, but People are. People seem to have no awareness of what's happening.
2: Probably I would say in the leadership realm. I don't know what you think. <laughs> Nodding as well. Yeah, I feel like in the leadership realm, um, because that's where we're still seeing a big glass ceiling and, and we're seeing women not move into medical leadership the same way that they've been moving into medicine itself. Um, and there's still a lot of those ideas about even when it's like an all-male panel or all-white male panel at a conference or you know, like an all-male board of an organization or something, there's still that sort of like, well, you know, we just want to pick the best candidates for the job and it's just a meritocracy and we can't be, you know, selective or can't, we don't see gender, we don't see race, those sorts of comments come up a lot. So I think in that, in that area, in that sphere, it's, it's still, um, very hard to have those discussions about equity sometimes.
1: When you do try to have those conversations with people in those leadership roles, do you feel like it's possible to overcome that power imbalance?
2: I think we, the only way we fix it is we, we get uh, women into power, um, into positions of power and not just the one token woman and not just the one token woman who got there by behaving like all the, all the men. So we need women in power, but we also need women to bring other women with them in, into positions of power. So to help women up. Um, and we need women in power who are equity minded, who are, or looking at equity beyond just a gender lens, but looking at all, all sorts of types of equity. Um, and, uh, basically we need feminism in, in places of leadership <laughs> That's what we need to get, not, not just one or two women, but, uh, feminist women who are equity minded, who are, um, bringing the next generation up with them. And I think, I think that only at that point are things going to really substantially change.
3: Yeah. I just to echo what Dr. Cohen's saying. I mean, I remember seeing like a poster for, uh, like gender equity discussion like panel discussion and all the panel members were actually male right like oh, and you're kind of like H- well how did this how did this happen you know i've seen great examples in the media of you know male experts stepping back and saying you know sure i could do this interview with you about blah but my colleague so and so who happens to be a woman is also very knowledgeable about this field actually she has more experience in this than me Maybe you could reach out to her. I can put you in touch, right? So sometimes that like collaboration, I guess, from our colleagues and our rec- recognition from our, our male colleagues can really help, I think. Um, it can't just be women breaking down these structures. We kind of have to do it all together.
0: Do you happen to know um, what the percentage disparity is for women in leadership roles in medicine?
2: So I have a slide from a talk I did in 2018 where I did this research. So this might be a little bit out of date, I know right now, so 11% deans of medicine. I know that's changed because we've gotten, I think one more dean of medicine. So I think we're four for 17 now and only one woman of color. Um, But basically we're starting with about 63% med students is what this data says. About 32% of them end up being full-time faculty and only about 23% of them end up being on boards, like on the CMA board or other boards. And then as you go up in terms of academic leadership or hospital department leadership, it's like 20% or less. So, you know, when you get to um, heads of department, heads of academic um, facilities, you know, um, in, in leadership in terms of policy, we're looking at less than 20% or in some cases less than 15%. So it's pretty stark, especially considering that At the the student level, women have been overrepresented for a while. I think we, the statistic I remember is we we achieved gender parity in med school enrollment in 1995, I believe, mid nineties. So since 1995, there have been more women entering med school than men. And that percentage has steadily gone up um, every year to about, you know, where we're seeing about roughly two thirds women. Um, And so that generation going back to the nineties, like they're not in school anymore. They're, they're, they're well into practice. They're into their mid career. And we're still seeing not much movement so that you're getting to like only, you know, 11%, 12% are are deans and only about 13% are hospital faculty, like hospital leadership. So it's, it's still a big, big um, issue. And I think it's just it's It's been really interesting to me how the movement of women has been so huge. is such a big demographic shift, but just at the lower levels and into those upper levels, there's been almost no movement at all.
1: So you talked about how that shift is happening at the trainee level. So students in medical school, do you think that there's another layer like within training itself when female identifying physicians are being trained in those core years when people are figuring out how they'll practice medicine? Is there some sort of dynamic that's happening there that's really preventing people from pursuing or being able to pursue those leadership positions later?
2: Right. Yeah. So we talk about the hidden curriculum. That's one of the terms for it. And so the hidden curriculum is something that kind of influences you. It's not an overt thing that influences you in, in medicine, but it's a subtle way that you learn about sort of the rules and biases and and, and really old discriminatory practices in medicine uh, that are still around so female students are all exposed to the hidden curriculum much like we you know we all are and and so female students are often get messages like this specialty is more family friendly you know women really appreciate having the t- time off women just work less This specialty is too physically demanding for you you know this position is just too is too many hours and and only men seem to like it. And so you get a lot of those kind of subtle comments and not so subtle comments all the time. Um including including now. You know, I hear from, from female trainees now who seem to be hearing much of the same stuff that I did, you know, back 15 years ago or so. So I don't think that's really I don't think the hidden curriculum has really changed very much. I feel like it's much the same messages that we've always been getting that women just have a certain uh, role in medicine and our role is basically to uh, provide comfort to patients and emotional support when when um uh, the other male physicians or other physicians don't want to and to spend time with them and, and provide you know counseling and psychosocial care um and and not really to spend long hours working hard and bossing people around the way you would in a leadership role so I think we've kind of the, the hidden curriculum is all around us influencing us in, in that influencing trainees in that way
3: if you look at like the last hundred years or 200 years as CMA presidents and you see like one woman of color, I think, and then three, maybe four women or something like that.
2: Yeah. I mean, what, what do you say to like young women of color in medicine? When like, we've only had one woman of color president of the CMA. Like, what are they, what do they see as their path to, to the future? Who are their mentors and role models in that situation when they see it's so incredibly hard for a woman of color to, to, to get into that role, she has to be like so exceptional for that to happen. And it's just so just who knows when the next the next woman of color is going to be president of the CMA. We've had a few other white women since then, a couple, I think. Um, but but you know, in particular, and you're looking for for role models and mentors, like where where are they for for certain groups? They're just not available.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's uh, it certainly sounds like it's barrier after barrier as opposed to um, you know, the, the, the traditional avenues available in other circumstances, just not quite being there, which sounds like it's definitely a considerable challenge uh, to navigate, like you said, at all levels. We'll, we'll switch gears and we'll talk about today. Today is the first Canadian Women Physicians Day. And it's was chosen to be on March 11 for a, a set of specific reasons, and we'd love, to, we'd love to hear about those specific reasons.
3: March 11th was chosen because it was the date of lic- licensure of Dr. Jenny Trout, and she was the first woman who was licensed to practice medicine in Canada. I think that was 1875, and she was, like, quite an inspiring woman when I was reading about her. So, basically, she was born in Scotland... Taught public school until she actually had a bout of illness, and that inspired her to pursue a career in medicine. But because Canadian medical schools weren't accepting female students at the time, she ended up going to Pennsylvania, attending the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, and then graduated in 1875 and came back to Toronto. Um, So then she got her medical license and opened her own practice, and she had all kinds of interesting initiatives. She she had a free dispensary for patients in financial need. So again, kind of like looking at that socioeconomic whole picture. When there was a group of male doctors who were planning to open a medical school for women in Toronto, she basically offered them $10,000 with the condition that women would be allowed to teach and also form the majority of the trustees on the board. So this is, I think, really like, kind of revolutionary for for that time. They refused her offer, and instead she went on to help found the Women's Medical College in Kingston, Ontario. That's kind of the history behind why we chose March 11th. And I I should just mention that one of her contemporaries, so Dr. Emily Stowe, was actually the first woman to practice medicine in Canada, the second woman to get a medical license. And her birthday, I think, is actually National Physician's Day in Canada, so kind of wanting to recognize uh, Dr. Stowe's contemporary Dr. Trout and make sure that she also had some recognition.
0: What a, what a great day to choose. And this landmark day was put together by this nonprofit organization that the two of you uh, are a part of. This is the Canadian uh, Women in Medicine. Can you tell us more about the organization and when it started and uh, the mission of the organization as it pertains, particularly to today, the first Canadian uh, Women Physicians Day?
3: So, I've, I mean, the organizations, um, as Dr. Colin had mentioned previously, it's been around for only a few years now. Um, so I found out about it when I went to a conference, um, back when like in-person conferences were a thing, I think it was like two or three Mm -hmm. years ago. Um, and I just thought it was incredible. Like this was the first time I'd ever been to a conference that was like all women and talking about women's issues and gender equity and leadership. And it was just so inspiring and so empowering to be part of that community um, So when the opportunity came up this year to apply for the board, that was definitely something that I wanted to get involved with. came up with the idea for a Canadian Women Physicians' Day last year, um, and have to say that I would not have been able to like promote and amplify and get the word out about this day without the support of Canadian women in medicine and their community.
2: And yeah, it's just, it's very powerful, I think, to be in a, in a, a room, this large room full of women and full of people who understand an experience that is fairly unique, um, being a female physician and, um, that you often don't get to talk about in those terms because we kind of have to be in medicine. We kind of have to be dehumanized in a way to, to do our job. Sometimes we sort of have to stow those, those sorts of feelings, human more human or emotional feelings, and also to be able to talk about gender equity issues without uh, being sort of dismissed by male colleagues. So it's powerful to be in a room like that.
1: There is a couple of things that I think we really want to touch on from what you both just said. Uh, but just one question we had first was, uh, we talked about how the history of the day was acknowledging Dr. Jenny Trout and then her contemporary. Now, in terms of the current conferences and events and the movement, what are we sort of championing today for women in medicine and moving forward? So,
3: I mean, I think like we had kind of started out, out talking about just awareness of, of these issues and uh, how there really isn't enough awareness about it outside of medicine and within medicine as well. So I think that would be a good s- starting point. I'm um, sure that there will be some people who ask me like why Canadian Women Physicians Day like what is the need for that again like you know more than 60% of new medical students are women that should be good enough like um, what do we still have left to do so I guess to open that conversation and also just recognize that we do have some really amazing women physicians who are accomplishing incredible things Um, I think whether it's like a stereotype or like societal pressure, women are generally not encouraged to brag about themselves um, or promote themselves or um, talk about their achievements. Um, So I really wanted to give us a chance to do that and to be able to celebrate some of the things that women physicians have accomplished. So this year, um, I mean, considering everything that has happened with the pandemic, um, we chose to specifically recognize some of our women leaders in public health Um, so had invited, um, quite a large number of women in public health who, like a lot of them are quite busy. Um, and so Dr. Teresa Tam, Dr. Bonnie Henry, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, uh, Dr. Cami Condola, um, Dr. Barbara Yaffe, and then Dr. Jennifer Russell are all going to be participating in our virtual event, which we think is going to be really great. Um, and we're just so excited to be able to recognize Everything that these amazing, incredible women have achieved over the last year.
1: So, something that you both sort of touched on, um, Dr. Wong, you mentioned how people uh, might not think that maybe this is a big issue just because we have more female identifying med students. And Dr. Cohen, you mentioned how at these events there's a different kind of energy from people who understand uh, the commonalities of the pressures you're facing. Um, and I think what that really leads us to is how, how the people around women in medicine are reacting to the movement. And so I know this, I know there's like a line you might have to toe, but how has the medical community reacted to this movement and have they been supportive?
3: So in terms of Canadian Women Physicians Day, I think it's generally pretty benign. It's like not a big ask to write to medical school and say, hey, could you help promote this day? Can you wish us a happy Canadian Women Physicians Day? The response that I've gotten when I've reached out to like the University of Calgary, for example, which is where I went to medical school or to the Alberta Medical Association or the different like provincial territorial medical associations has been very, very supportive and very positive. Dr. Cohen, I don't know if you want to talk about like the reception to your article, for example.
2: Yeah, so it's kind of depends. I mean, I think, yeah, something like National Women's Physician Women Physicians Day is probably pretty easy for um hospitals or ac- academic um, institutions to, to champion, because it's just, you know, how much work is that for them? I think it's when we start to ask for things. Um, so uh, when we start to suggest that we are owed more <laughs> of our share, um, so to speak, of healthcare healthcare funding, um, when we are owed more of uh, a space in leadership or, uh, you know, on that conference panel or in that boardroom or in that um, you know, negotiation committee, for example, that's negotiating fee, fees with the government, um, which in Ontario has been very male dominated and, and probably other provinces as well. So it's when we start to make asks for things that I think we get less support. And I think that's probably pretty true of any social movement um, and equity-based movements is it's, it's easy to say, it's easy to celebrate and say, yeah, good for you, yeah, work hard, oh, I'm you know, proud of your accomplishments. And it's much harder to say, Okay, what can I do? What can I give up? Can I, you know, lean back and give up a position for a female colleague? Can I let somebody speak ahead of me? Can I, you know, explore the idea that perhaps I'm being paid more than I should be for this procedure, and my female colleague who does a similar procedure is being paid less? Like those, those sorts of things are are harder to ask for, I think, in any um, social justice or any sort of movement where. An, a group is, is asking for something, asking for progress, asking for a, an overrepresented, um, overly empowered group to, to give something up or to make space. Um, so in those those situations, yeah, you get some nasty emails and you get some nasty comments <laughs> and, uh, you know, those, those kinds of things, which are, I think, just part of the process and kind of revealing, in some ways, of the sorts of attitudes. So sometimes I kind of like getting those um, nasty messages because, um, you know, don't take it personally. And um, and it's, it gives you an insight into the sorts of attitudes that you need to change. So sometimes it's kind of like a learning opportunity in a weird way, but uh, I think it, it it depends. It's a mix of reactions. I've posted stuff that I've received before, because I think it's kind of nice in some ways to point to it and say, this is the attitude that you're probably not seeing that, you know, you from in the majority group are probably not Getting this sort of nasty comments or or getting these sorts of sorts of attitudes, whether um, expressed in a direct way or more subtle, you know. So it's sometimes it's it's nice when when people just yeah. show you exactly who they are, and then you can just say, well, yeah, this is it. This is the attitude that we're facing, and it makes it more clear for everyone who's kind of on the fence, maybe. So it could be it could be instructive.
0: It reveals so much of the depth of the problem when someone isn't even like. Thinking about like, you know, as if it was going to protect them in some way, like their own image, you know, and it's, it's, it's remarkable how people's opinions come come right out in these scenarios. So
1: I think that's a really good segue actually to a couple of closing questions we had for you. And one, I think that's really impactful uh, for Josh and I to ask, but for individuals who are not female identifying physicians, how can we better understand the issue, um, advance the cause like in our everyday work in the healthcare field? Uh, in our own fields and positively contribute to the position of women in medicine.
2: So. Uh- I think in healthcare we all ha- should be aware of the history of healthcare because it's a very biased and discriminatory history so i think it's it's hard to come up in something that is a, a culture that is still so traditionalist in so many ways and there's so much of the like well this is just the way i trained and this is just the way we do it and so this is the way we're always going to do it so um, medicine has some pretty conservative roots in that way uh, that it doesn't really want to change so i think it's and, and not just medicine healthcare in general um, so being aware of the history is really helpful. Sometimes when I talk about the history of uh, history of medicine, I get a response that's like, well, you know, that's history. Like, who cares? We're, we're, we've moved on, stop talking about the past. And I think if we don't learn from our past, then of course, you know, we're, we're just gonna, we're doomed to repeat the same mistakes. So I think that's part of it. Um, and then I also encourage everyone to, um, just pay attention to equity issues in general. And again, I feel like this current um, generation of med students and, and, uh, and trainees is really good at that compared to older generations, but uh, to just be mind, mindful of equity issues, be mindful of, of when there is a group of people um, who's being left out. So, if there is a group of people that has some access to some advantage, if there's a group of award recipients, you know, this is a like every single issue can be an equity issue if you if we examine it in that way. And so often it doesn't get examined in that light. But, like at U of T, there was like, I think a Fifteen or sixteen-year string of of men, male students winning uh, the valedictorian prize, which is a prize, an award that is voted on by students. So even in this very progressive, equity-minded cohort of students, that's not like representing the old guard or anything or the old dinosaurs. Um, there's still this tendency to promote men and over and over and over again year after year after year even in a group that's where women are overrepresented so award recipients who's in the boardroom who's on that committee who you know is in that leadership space who has access to things that other people don't and looking beyond gender as well and looking beyond the gender binary um, and looking to issues of race and sexuality um, and, and other issues outside of gender so just challenge people to be continually to educate themselves in the history and to, to continue to be continually be aware of the dynamics around them
3: like i really commend you for asking the question because um like i think that's where you have to come from as an open mind so i think there is this default like okay sexism is really bad everyone i think would agree on that very easily so when you bring up these topics sometimes there is a, a tendency to become like defensive or hurt right like and it's not necessarily a, a personal thing if someone's asking you, like, oh, can you help me understand when this happened? Like, what did you mean by that? So just, you know, listening and keeping an open mind.
0: I really like the concrete example that you had with someone being reached out to by the media or something and looking for an opinion, and they would reach out to traditionally maybe someone in a male role, that person being actively aware enough to say... Yeah, I, I have spoke about this or I can speak about this but I, I can point you in another direction and sort of make sure that those opportunities get the representation when maybe they're defaulting to this person for no specific reason other than tradition. Can you think of any other examples along that line? That one really stuck out to me as like a decision that someone can make in the moment.
3: Like when you go to a meeting that's men and women and um, in my experience I've noticed that a lot of times the meetings tend to be dominated by male voices. Um, so if you're the person chairing the meeting just to make sure that everyone around the table has a chance to speak
1: so before we end our end our show today is there anything that people can do today to help support the movement um, and support the celebration of the day
3: so i would love to be, see people just say thank you to a woman in medicine maybe somebody who has inspired them or um, helped them or taught them something in some way um, if you're on social media we have a hashtag it's hashtag women docs can um, and if you want to tweet about an extraordinary woman in medicine on March 11th today, that would be incredible.
0: Thank you very much to the both of you, uh, Dr. Wong and Dr. Cohen, for being here with us today on Sick Than Your Average Health Show. We're uh, very grateful to have had this conversation and we certainly learned a lot and hope that our listeners are able to to learn from this as well. So thank you so much for being with us.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you.
1: Big thanks to our guests, Dr. Michelle Cohen and Dr. Liana Wong for joining us today and talking to us about why today is so important. The show is hosted by Preet Gandhi and Josh Britton.
0: Editing and production assistance by Mac Britton. If you haven't already, subscribe and download the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.
1: Be sure to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at SickHealthShow. And be sure to take a look at what we're posting today with the hashtag WomenDocsCan to learn more about Canadian Women Physicians Day and why it's so important right now.
0: We're looking forward to sharing more with you on our next episode of Sicker Than Your Average Health Show.